Tonight on Throwback Thursday as Tune FM celebrates 50 years, 1973. From Secretariat to American Graffiti and Wounded Knee to the Sydney Opera House, we're taking a look at all the significant events from 1973. I have much pleasure in declaring the Sydney Opera House open. This is 50 Years of Tune FM, 1973. It certainly is, and it's great to be here with you this evening on 106.9 Tune FM as we celebrate another year in Tune's 50-year history. We're going to be looking at several different events throughout 1973 including Secretariat's Triple Crown, possibly the greatest racing horse in history. We're going to be looking at the premiere of American Graffiti, the directorial debut of George Lucas, who would go on a matter of years later to make Star Wars, of course. Uh, we're going to be looking at the occupation of Wounded Knee. And, of course, we're going to be looking at some architectural news as two very significant pieces of architecture opened in 1973, the Sears Tower in Chicago and a little bit closer to home, the Sydney Opera House. Plenty more coming up, including some great music from 1973 as well, so make sure you stay tuned. But we'll kick it off by looking at Secretariat. Uh, who won the Triple Crown in 1973. Now, we here in Australia all know all about uh, Farlap and Maccabi Diva and more recently uh, Black Caviar, but um, we might be a little bit arrogant if we said that, if we would, wouldn't admit that Secretariat was possibly the greatest racing horse of all time. Uh, it became the first Triple Crown winner in 25 years when he won his victory at the Belmont Stakes by Get this, 31 lengths, which is widely regarded as one of the greatest horse races in history. He won five Eclipse Awards during his racing career, including Horse of the Year honors at ages two and three, and he was nominated to the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame in 1974. He is listed as the in the top 100 U.S. racehorses of the 20th century in second place. Uh, to Man of War, who had a racing career in the late 1910s. But Secretariat, um, pretty a pretty remarkable racehorse indeed. At age two, he finished fourth in his debut in a maiden race, but he then won seven of his remaining eight starts, including five stakes victories. But we'll look at that triple crown because uh, the significance of that is quite remarkable. He not only won the Triple Crown, he set speed records in all three races, and his time in the Kentucky, Kentucky Derby still stands as the record for the one and one quarter mile at the Churchill Downs track. His time in the Belmont Stakes stands as the American record for one and a half miles on dirt, and his controversial time in the Preakness Stakes was eventually recognized as a state's record in 2012. You can look it up on YouTube, any of those races, he just takes off. An interesting fact about Secretariat, actually, is that um, unlike most racehorses that were completely dominant during their time, he accelerates. If you look at, um, if you do look at his times over each quarter of the race, each quarter is faster than the previous quarter. He accelerates the whole time throughout the whole one and a quarter or one and a half miles. Uh, he's a pretty spectacular horse indeed. 
Um, but the Belmont Stakes was that famous race in 1973. Only four races, four horses uh, challenged him, including Sham and three other horses that were thought to have little chance, twice a prince, my gallant and private smiles. So with so few horses in the race and uh, Secretariat expected to win, they were called no show, they called no show bets. Um, essentially, Secretariat was sent off as a one to 10 favorite. Um, there was a crowd of just over 69,000, which was the second largest attendance in Belmont history. And the race was televised and watched by over 15 million households. It had an audience share on television of 52%. On race day, uh, Secretariat broke well, got on the rail and uh, just ran away with it. It was absolutely incredible to watch. Like I said, you can see it on uh, YouTube. And he became the ninth Triple Crown winner in history, the first since Citation in 1948, which is a gap of 25 years. Um, it Essentially, bettors never redeemed uh, most of the betting tickets on Secretariat because they were essentially worthless. If you had bet $2 on Secretariat, it would have paid out $2.20. Um, so over 5,500 uh, bets at the actual venue were never redeemed um, despite having one. I, I guess if you're in the, uh, in, in the bookmakers stand there, you're probably counting your lucky stars. But uh, that's Secretariat. On this day, uh, well, on this, I apologize, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Not on this day, but in 1973, becoming a, the ninth Triple Crown winner and the first in 25 years. He uh, eventually went on to retire to a farm in Kentucky, where he eventually passed away aged 19 in 1989. Um, an absolutely incredible racing horse uh, who made history back in 1973. Don't go anywhere. I'll be back with you in the next break. We're going to be talking about a couple of things, which includes the occupation of Wounded Knee and, of course, the premiere of American Graffiti, George Lucas's breakout film. Don't go anywhere. Uh, plenty more to come on Throwback Thursday this evening. You've been listening to Throwback Thursday 1973 as we go through another year in Tunes history. Elsewhere in 1973, the United States ended its involvement in the Vietnam War after signing the Paris Peace Accords in January. The agreement was signed between North Vietnam, South Vietnam, the Viet Cong and the United States. The formal name of the agreement was an agreement ending the war and restoring peace in Vietnam, and it detailed an all-round ceasefire in Vietnam and the withdrawal of all U.S. forces and removal of all U.S. bases to be completed within 60 days. It also mandated that North Vietnam release all prisoners of war and outlined the details in terms for an eventual peaceful reunification of Vietnam. You are listening to 106.9 Tune FM. This is Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John.
listening to Throwback Thursday 1973, going through another year in Tune FM's 50-year history. And it's good to be back with you here on 106.9 Tune FM. We're going to talk a little bit more now about 1973 and two events in particular that were very influential in uh, quite different ways. First up, we have the Wounded Knee Incident, the occupation of Wounded Knee on the 27th of February, 1973. And we'll go on to talk about the release of American Graffiti, George Lucas's film, which came out that year as well, premiering in August. But let's start with Wounded Knee. Now, it's one that uh, I'm sure you might have heard the name before, but if obviously um, with it being a an American event, we don't hear quite a lot about it here in Australia. The Wounded Knee occupation began on the 27th of February, 1973, when approximately 200 Oglala Lakota and followers of the American Indian movement seized and occupied a town called Wounded Knee in South Dakota on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Uh, so 10 other resi- 11 residents, uh, apologies, of the area were apprehended at gunpoint and taken hostage. Um, the protest was essentially for the failure of an effort of a civil rights organization to impeach tribal president Richard Wilson, who'd been accused of corruption and abuse of opponents. They also criticized the U.S. government's failure to fulfill treaties with Native American people and demanding, demanded the reopening of treaty negotiations to hopefully arrive at fair and equitable treatment of Native Americans. There's been obviously ongoing disputes between uh, particularly the U.S. government and Native American peoples as to their treatment and um, 
sort of the way that they've been treated since uh, European settlement in the United States. Uh, and this was quite a uh, large outburst of those uh, sentiments. Uh, essentially, the activists could control the town for 71 days while the United States Marshal Service, FBI agents and other law enforcement agencies uh, tried to cordon off the area. Uh, they chose this site because back in 1890, uh, and perhaps the incident that you probably know the name of Wounded Knee for, in 1890, there was the Wounded Knee Massacre. So it had a great deal of historic and symbolic value, um, particularly in Native American history. In March, uh, after it had been quite under uh, Native American control for quite some time, a U.S. Marshal was shot by gunfire coming from the town. Uh, he was ultimately paralyzed. Uh, and a member of the Cherokee tribe and a member of the Oglala Lakota tribe were both killed by shootings in April. Um, a civil rights activist named Ray Robinson joined in with the protesters, but he disappeared during the events, and it is believed that he was potentially murdered um, and due to damage to the houses in the end once the movement was over the small community was not reoccupied until the 1990s it attracted really wide media coverage especially after the press accompanied by two u.s senators from south dakota um, they they came to wounded knee uh, and those events electrified many native american supporters who traveled to wounded knee to join in the protest at the time there was very widespread public sympathy for the goals of the occupation so it was a very tense affair obviously richard nixon was president at this uh, point in time um, and up to a thousand federal agents and a national guard maintenance personnel as well as helicopters and apcs were sent to wounded knee to try and get the situation under control rather controversially as president nixon is known for being um wilson the uh senate the um tribal president that they were trying to depose stayed in office and was actually re-elected in 1974 amid charges of intimidation voter fraud and other abuses the rate of violence actually climbed on the reservation as conflict opened between political factions in those following three years um, essentially, it, it didn't really insult, it result in much, um, despite all of the casualties and losses. Two were killed, one missing, and 16 wounded on both sides of that incident. So a rather unfortunate incident, but one that had uh, sentiments that still echo today, uh, occurring between February and May of 1973, all up lasting for two months, one week, and four days. But we will move on and we'll talk about, uh, obviously, the more uplifting of the two uh, events that we're going to be talking about in this se this segment. And in a different area, we're going into the arts. And we're talking about George Lucas and the release of his breakout film, American Graffiti, which released in the United States on August 11th, 1973. It's a coming-of-age comedy film that uh, Lucas both directed and co-wrote. It stars Richard Dreyfuss, Ron Howard, Paul Lamatt, and some faces that people might recognize in Lucas's later films, such as Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill. Uh, there were plenty of different uh, appearances that you would certainly recognize from Star Wars films. It's essentially a film set in Modesto, California in 1962. And it's a study of the kind of 
rock and roll culture in the 60s that was popular among Lucas's age group at the time. It's told through a series of vignettes or little short stories, and it tells the story of a group of teenagers and their adventures over the course of a single night. The idea came from Lucas's own teenage years in early 1960s California. He tried to pitch the concept to many different financiers and distributors, but he found favor at Universal Pictures after every other major film studio in Hollywood had already turned him down. They were the last ones that he turned to. Uh, he was going to, it, there was another setback. He was going to be filming in San Rafael, California, but the production crew was denied permission to shoot beyond two days. As a result, production was then moved to Petaluma, California. It premiered on the 2nd of August at the Locarno International Film Festival in Switzerland and was released worldwide well, in the United States on the 11th of August. It received immediate widespread critical, critical acclaim and was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. It's pretty remarkable what it managed to do at the box office as well. Get this. The budget was $777,000 and it became one of the most profitable films of all time, garnering an estimated return of well over $200 million in box office gross and home video sales, not including merchandising. That's absolutely astonishing, well over $200 million in profit. It's a pretty remarkable film as well. I don't know if you've, if you've seen it. If you're a fan of Star Wars and would like to see maybe where George Lucas's career got its kickstart, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, make sure you see if you can find a copy of it somewhere. Uh, and obviously from there, George Lucas's career uh, was blasted quite literally into the stars because a matter of four years later, his next major project was a little film called Star Wars. We're going to be right back with you here on Throwback Thursday, uh, 1973. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about two major architectural achievements that opened in 1973, including what was the tallest building in the world at the time, the Sears Tower in Chicago, and one that's a little bit closer to home, and that is the Sydney Opera House, one of the finest architectural achievements in history and obviously an icon of our nation here in Australia. We'll be right back with you very shortly on 106.9 Tune FM. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Throwback Thursday 1973 as we look through another year in Tune FM's history. Elsewhere in 1973, the famous Battle of the Sexes tennis match took place between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs in September of 1973. 29-year-old Billie Jean King had already won 10 Grand Slam titles and was a pioneer in women's tennis and went up against 55-year-old Bobby Riggs, who was at one point considered the best tennis player in the world. King won handily, winning in three sets, 6-4, 6-3, 6-3. King expressed relief at the end of the match, stating that she was worried losing it would have set women back. She also took home $100,000 in prize money. Over 30,000 spectators attended the match in Houston, Texas, and an estimated 90 million people viewed the televised match worldwide, making it the most viewed tennis match in history. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. Up next, we have Piano Man by Billy Joel.
till the crowd shuffles in There's an old man sitting next to me Making love to his tonic and gin Beer. 
You're listening to Throwback Thursday 1973, going through another year in Tune FM's 50-year history. You are indeed listening to 106.9 Tune FM. Jake back with you to discuss a couple more uh, significant events from 1973 as we continue to throw you back to another year in Tune's 50-year history. We're going to be talking about two fantastic architectural achievements that opened in 1973, and we're going to start off overseas in Chicago, The what is now known as the Willis Tower. It was called the Sears Tower when it opened. It was a, It's 110 stories high, 442 meters, uh, and at completion, it surpassed the World Trade Center in New York City to become the tallest building in the world. It would hold that title for nearly 25 years until the Petronas Twin Towers opened in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia in 1998. It was also the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere for 41 years up until the new One World Trade Center surpassed it in 2014. It also held the title of tallest office building in the world until 2014 and it lost the title of tallest man-made structure only uh, after only three years, uh, the CN Tower in Toronto taking over that. It's considered a massive achievement. It's currently the third tallest building in the United States and the Western Hemisphere and the 23rd tallest in the world. Each year, more than 1 million people visit its observation deck, which is the highest observation deck in the United States, which makes it one of Chicago's most popular tourist destinations. Uh, it was called the Sears Tower until it was renamed in 2009. Um it's a pretty incredible piece of architecture because it's essentially built with like a bundled tube. I'm not exactly sure how to describe that to you on radio, but it was a massive achievement of uh, by architect Fazlur Rahman Khan, who uh, built this bundled tube structure with uh, basically these different floor plans where they'd essentially be a bunch of uh, different sized towers all bundled together to make one particularly large tower. It was planned in 1969 by the largest retailer in the world, Sears Roebuck & Co. They had about 350,000 employees and they decided to consolidate those employees in offices in the Chicago area uh, all into one building. And so they decided to uh, put this building together. Some of the stats about it, it has 110 floors plus three basement floors. Its height is 442 meters architecturally, but if you go up to the tip of the spire, it's actually 527 meters. It has 104 lifts and elevators with 16 double-decker elevators, all uh, made by Westinghouse. A total of over 416,000 square meters of floor space. It's uh, pretty incredible. It took them three years to build it, and what a remarkable achievement it was. So that's the first time that you've heard that record be broken during our countdown uh, of the 50 years in Tunes history. But I guarantee you'll hear it again. As we said, it was surpassed in 1998, and we might mention that when we get up to that year in history. But 
I'm going to talk about a an architectural achievement that's a little bit closer to home now, something else that opened in 1973 and took a lot longer than three years to construct. And we are indeed talking about the Sydney Opera House, one of the 20th century's most famous and distinctive buildings. Uh, I'm sure you might have heard the story before if you've ever been to the Opera House or down to Sydney at all. It was designed by Danish architect Jørn Utzon, uh, but it was completed by an Australian architectural team uh, when Utzon left the project. It was formally opened on the 20th of October 1973, but get this, construction began on the 1st of March 1959. Uh, that meant that it took 14 years uh, to finally complete the construction. The government of New South Wales, led by Premier Joseph Cahill, had authorised work to begin back in 1958 with Woodson directing construction. Uh, and it's a little bit overshadowed with circumstances that followed, including the cost and scheduling going way, way, way over the top. It took uh, up a lot more money and time than it was initially um, expected to. It cost at the time 102 million Australian dollars, which accounting for inflation is about a billion. It's it's about a billion dollars. So that's absolutely ginormous. Uh, basically, if you haven't been there, the building comprises of multiple performance venues, which host more than 1,500 performances annually and are attended by more than 1.2 million people every year. Uh, it's The building and its surrounds occupy the whole of Benelong Point on Sydney Harbour, which is in between Sydney Cove and Farm Cove, right near the Sydney CBD and the Royal Botanic Gardens and very close to the Sydney Harbour Bridge. In 2007, it became a UNESCO World Heritage site, having been listed on the Register of the National Estate since 1980 and the National Trust of Australia since 1983. It is uh, a finalist in the new Seven Wonders of the World campaign list, so we could have a wonder of the world in our very own backyard. Having a look at it, its dimensions are not quite as impressive as Sears Tower. It uh, comes to a length of 183 metres and a width of 120 metres, but only a height of 65 meters. Uh, it has a bunch of different theaters in there. The concert hall is the biggest with 2,679 seats, followed by the Jones Sutherland Theater. There's also the drama theater, the playhouse, the studio, the Utzon Room, the recording studio, and of course the outdoor forecourt. It's an absolutely incredible building, uh, very iconic. And an interesting fact is that it was actually meant to be a whole lot bigger. There were meant to be a lot more sales on it. Um, but obviously with Utzon leaving the project and it running well over budget, uh, they opted to uh, leave it as it was. Um, but planning for this goes all the way back to the late 1940s when Eugene Gussens, the director of the New South Wales State Conservatorium of Music, lobbied for a suitable venue for larger theatrical productions. And so they put out a contest for a design. Utzon was eventually the winner. He hadn't completed the final designs uh, by the time that he was awarded the project, which was part of the initial setbacks. But um, obviously, we now have it today. It is a World Heritage Site and an absolutely gorgeous uh, piece of architecture. And it was opened by Queen Elizabeth II 
in October of 1973, another year in Tune FM's history. It's been a pleasure to be with you here on Throwback Thursday. Next week, we're going to be uh, fortunate enough to be joined by someone to talk about Stephen King. We're going to be talking about 1974 and the release of Stephen King's very first novel, which was Carrie. So make sure you join us next week, Thursday from five o'clock, same place, same time here on Throwback Thursday. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening to Throwback Thursday 1973, helping Tune FM celebrate 50 years. Don't forget to join us next week as we move to 1974 and talk about the publication of Stephen King's very first novel, Carrie. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM, your home of student-powered radio for the last 50 years.